Amber, you're on call. So you've got these two ancient looking cell phones <laughs> with you. Yep. Right? And then they're, they're Deepu. They're flip phones, guys. <laughs> oh my goodness, it is a flip phone. Wow. Yep. Hello and welcome everyone. This is the Integrated Care Podcast, uh, sponsored by the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Thank you for joining us again today. My name is Naftali Serrano. I'm the Executive Director of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. And today you are lucky because we have the entire podcast team here. Yay! <laughs> so I'll have the podcast team just say hello one by one. Amber, why don't you say hello to our folks? Okay, I, I guess since I was the middle of the Brady Bunch squares, I get to go first. Um, hi, my name is Amber Gordon, and you'll find out more about the Brady Bunch squares in our show notes. Um, I am joining the team today from just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where we had a light dusting of snow this morning. Great, great. Uh, Deepu, uh, from a whole different part of the country, why don't you say hello? Great. Uh morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are and however you are listening to us. Uh, welcome to the show today. Uh, contrary to national narratives and beliefs, we are safe here in the Rio Grande Valley and there is no crisis at the border per se. Uh, and we have no... Are you sure, Deepu? I am pretty sure. <laughs> I live 18 <laughs> minutes to the border and I'm doing just great. <laughs> All right. All right, good to know. Uh, Jeffrey, why don't you say hello? Hey, everybody. Greetings from Los Angeles. Um, it's a gray, rainy morning here, which is rare and would in most ways be welcome, except that I'm facilitating an all-day retreat for wellness vitality for um, uh, medical residents in the gardens, up at Descanso Gardens. What are we going to do if we can't go into the gardens and find mindful appreciation, beauty, and uh, gratitude? So, uh, um the sun pokes out. All right. And Grace. Hello. I'm just thinking that we need something different to talk about than the weather. Uh, maybe next <laughs> month <laughs> you have a question of the month for us to discuss because it seems like what always comes up. But I am in uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and we also have snow and ice on the ground today. In fact, my three-year-old is home from preschool today because they had an ice day. And the first thing he said this morning was, do I get to stay home today? And I said, yeah, you do. It's ice day. He's like, okay. Uh, <laughs> so that's one day he will have much more excitement. Today he's just like, whatever. He just wants to know what's coming up. So. Yeah, yeah. I do think our listeners tune in for the weather report. So let's not cut that out. Okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. where else are you going to get snippets of weather from all around the country? All around the country. Here on the so, uh, podcast. I mean, really. <laughs> Weather and integrated I mean, care. Good morning, America. Yeah, we could start sharing like, what we had for breakfast or something like that. I don't know if that would be more fascinating. Well, I mean, give us feedback, uh, listeners. Yeah, I know. I mean, maybe, maybe the issue is really that our our lives aren't that interesting. Maybe that's the the take Ooh. home. Speak for no. yourself, Natalie. <laughs> well, I, I can't say. Nine thirty last night. Okay. Yeah. My life is very exciting. Okay, so listen, so there are actually, it should, uh, we didn't, you know, record this part because this is pre-recording, but like every person like is in an interesting situation right now, right? So so Amber, you're on call. So you've got these two ancient looking cell phones Dino with phones. you, <laughs> yep. right? And then they're, they're Deepu, sweet, they're flip phones, guys. 
Oh my goodness, it is a flip phone. Wow. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Be jealous. And then Deepu is actually literally, he's, he's off today, but he's in his office and has already attended a seven o'clock meeting of a committee <laughs> of some sort, correct? That is correct, Jeff. I probably need to zoom over to your vitality conference over there. <laughs> that does not sound like my idea of a good vacation right. date. <laughs> no, no. Yikes. And then, and then Jeff is, you know, Jeff is doing his thing with the uh, the resident. That's a cool thing. And then, and then Grace, where exactly are you, Grace? Are you at your mom's house or your house or? <laughs> I'm at my parents' house. I'm in my dad's office. Uh, my mom is establishing care with home health today, and so I want to be here. And I'm very fortunate to have the flexibility in my work to be able to be here with her for that. And so yeah. I'm calling in from the guest bedroom slash home office <laughs> at my parents' house today. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that's fairly – I mean, I, I probably have the blandest. I'm just, you know, doing this from home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Uh in uh, the front room office. Um, my wife will probably slink away here in the background soon as she leaves, but. I will say you would be able to tell if I was home at my house as opposed to here at my parents' quiet house because of the screaming of children and crashes <laughs> and all of the noise that comes along with having three two-year-olds and one three-year-old at our house. Oh, so man. you can hear if I'm at home. <laughs> oh man, did you? Did you, uh, it's three two-year-olds. I was thinking about it today. You have triplets. I thought, uh, I was thinking you had twins. Oh my goodness. Oh no. Yeah. Just throw another baby in there. It's triplets. Oh, they turned two, wow. uh, since our last podcast. So oh. it's an adventure. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's still yeah. smiling guys. <laughs> which which does remind me we should we should do a podcast at some point about uh well we need to do a pediatrics focused podcast at some point um and i have so many parenting stories around the 15 month to two and a half year old stage where i stayed home with my daughter for a year um and it drove me back to work let's just say <laughs> She's gonna listen to this podcast someday, and she's gonna know. <laughs> I'd highly doubtful. Highly doubtful. <laughs> Maybe Neftali. Before we talk about parenting, we ought to talk about sex. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So, nice transition. So, yes, very, very nice, nice. Very nice. Sorry. Can always count on Jeff for that. All right. So uh, yes, moving on. Uh, before we move on, I'm happy to report we've got a sponsor for our podcast, and we want to do a shout out to our sponsor. Uh, thank you to the good folks at the University of Wisconsin um, uh, Health Systems. UW Health is making a big push into integrated care, um, and they've got a lot of positions open. They want you to go check their positions out at careers.uwhealth.org. That's careers.uwhealth.org. And if you don't know how great a city Madison is to live in, raise a family in, have fun in, um, particularly during those glorious summer months, um, check it out. It's a great place to live. I lived there for 10 years myself. So check out careers.uwhealth.org. The, un the other promo I want to do before we jump into our stuff today is uh, our call for proposals is open for our annual conference in Denver, Colorado. Please check that out at integratedcareconference.com. That's integratedcareconference.com. All right. Without further ado, we've got a very abbreviated news and notes section before we get to our main topic today, which is sex and integrated care. Um, really fun topic 
we've got a lot of stuff for you. But before that, we wanted to highlight our news and notes today. So let's go. For this month's news and notes, Amber and I are going to actually highlight some of the research in that the good folks from our uh, research committee have put together. So if you don't know, our research committee puts together these research summaries every quarter, and uh, they're posted on our news site, integratedcarenews.com, and you can find the link there uh, under the Family Systems and Health uh, RSS feed. It's just a button. It says research summaries. Pretty interesting. So, Amber, why don't you get us started with one of the research summaries that you chose to highlight for today? Okay. Um, so I did want to share for, um, people listening, wherever you might be listening that, uh, you know, I have to say, I wasn't aware that this was something that we had, um, on the website, but it is very mobily optimized. It's super easy to read on your smartphone. Um, so if you're, you know, commuting somewhere or like in between clients, um, it's really easy to just kind of pop on and uh, check these things out on your cell phone. So I actually have my topic pulled up right now. Uh, I took a look at uh, the research article. It's titled Classes of Depression Symptom Trajectories in Patients with Major Depression Receiving a Collaborative Care Intervention. Um, So I'm just going to briefly go over the purpose and what they found uh, to keep it real quick. If you want to know more, it's super easy for you to go on and kind of go through the study more in depth um, on your own time. So the purpose of this uh, particular study, they were looking at um, if collaborative care is effective in improving symptoms of patients with depression um, and then what the symptom trajectories were. They used uh, the PHQ-9 to measure and then they kind of clumped uh, patients into two groups. One was the slow improvers and then the other one was the fast improvers. Um, And they got a pretty good sample size. They looked at 74 practices, a total of uh, 626 patients. Uh, A notable portion of the patients, 39.5% improved slowly. And uh, what they actually ended up finding, um, which was one of those studies where what they're looking at actually yields an unexpected outcome, um, is that they found that there might be patients um, who you can kind of use this uh, screening for, if you will, to determine if they need more intensive treatment at certain points um, during a collaborative care intervention, um, and if that will actually help the trajectory of those depressive symptoms. It was a really interesting read. I highly recommend you go on and uh, check it out and read more. Cool. Yeah, definitely. And go to the original article. There's some really cool things there about fast and slow improvers. Um, and I like that we're digging deeper into that. Thank you, Amber. Mm-hmm. So my study here was uh, by Beck and colleagues. Uh, it's titled uh, Large Scale Large Scale Implementation of Collaborative Care Management for Depression and Diabetes and our Cardiovascular Disease. So this is similar to Amber's study. The difference is that uh, here the intervention is not just for depression but also for diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And what they're looking for looking at in this study is actually what impacts implementation of this model, which um, is called COMPASS, which stands for Care of Mental, Physical, and Substance Use Syndromes. So it's a really interesting read because it really goes into the nitty-gritty of why are there such different effect sizes when you look at different studies? In other words, it looks like the intervention doesn't um, have the equal impact in every setting. 
And so they took an implementation science lens to look at it, came up with nine different factors. I'm not going to give you all the nine factors, but I will note a couple of them. Um, not surprisingly, and this impacts not just collaborative care approaches, but really any sort of integrated care model, organizational issues were huge. Anything from physician morale to turnover in the organization. Um, in general, the, the uh, clinics, then uh, there were eight healthcare systems uh, serving 3,854 patients in this study. Um, said that they, they underestimated the amount of time needed to implement uh, the COMPASS model. Um, they also noted that prior experience with care coordination was an important predictive factor. So if you had more care coordination experience in your past, you were going to do better with the COMPASS model going forward. And then finally, uh, not surprisingly again, uh, those, those teams that had better developed team-based care cultures uh, did better with implementing this model. In particular, the relationship between the care manager and the primary care providers was a key factor. Um, some systems reported that they had just providers that just were not terribly open to working with care managers or perhaps underskilled care managers who didn't know how to give good recommendations, for example, to the uh, to the primary care providers. So check that article out. Again, go to integratedcarenews.com, click on the research summaries link, and uh, there you'll find more information. So that's our news and notes. Before we go on to our sex and integrated care topic, let's take a quick break. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results and you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one hour consultations to 1000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. All right, and we're back. And thank you again for joining us here on Integrated Care Podcast. We've got a great topic, so let's jump right in. This is sex and integrated care. Um, in part, we chose sex for this month because it's February. It's Valentine's month. Um, but also because it's one of those topics that's just not really talked about terribly. And yet it's one of the key, fu key factors of human functioning and human relationships. And so uh, we're going to start off our discussion today. There's lots to talk about um, related to this topic. But we're going to start off with um, sort of looking at it from a developmental perspective and trying to hit uh, the different sort of uh, developmental stages and what sexuality looks like at those stages and how it can present in primary care and some of the challenges related to that. Um, and then we'll go on to some of the sort of clinical issues that may may come up. So 
Um, I wanted to just throw out this question to the group here to get started here. So let's sort of uh, work our way backwards because uh, we usually think of sex and we think of either, you know, uh, young people or couples or married couples um, uh, in their early years, but we don't often think about sex and the older age range. So Grace, can you start us off just by talking a little bit about um, what what it is that we are, are more likely to miss when we're talking with older adults and sex. Yes. So of all of our isms that we pay attention to, I think ageism slips by sometimes, um, and maybe we're not even attending to the ways that that impacts our um, patient care. And so I was just, and working with the residents in my position, I think about just a lot of times offering them questions like, hey, have you thought about this? Or, hey, how might this be playing into what you're going on? And we have, you know, all these Medicaid wellness or Medicare wellness visits and really trying to evaluate the whole health of the person. And um, at, at one point I asked a resident, hey, have you ever asked this patient what's going on with their sexuality? And they're like, no, that hasn't come up. Uh, and I think a lot of it a lot of times has to do with these age differentials. Um, so many of our residents or providers um, are younger and our patients, are, especially our older adults, are much older. And so there's this generational gap. And there's sometimes, oh, that person is just like my grandmother, or just like my grandfather. But I mean, and just this um, really condescension kind of that happens. And so I just really encourage our residents to think about sexuality as spanning the lifespan. Um, so including older adulthood, including end of life. And um, one of you, I think, cited uh, the research that there is a huge uh, epidemic in some populations of older adults of sexually transmitted infections. Um, because it's not something that is talked about a lot of times or really focused on for health for that population. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm sure that for those of us who've worked in primary care, we also get those situations where we have the, you know, 60 to 70 year old man who comes in for a prescription for Viagra. Right. And so they get a prescription um, and. Uh, but there's not much else that's often done, right? There's not discussion. There's not exploration. There's not sort of meaning attached to it. Um, and so it, it, in in a way, it feels as if sometimes I think we don't want to touch sexuality in later life for whatever reason, for probably our own discomfort, maybe our system's discomfort with sort of exploring that and saying, hey, healthy sexuality later in life is just as important as healthy sexuality in midlife or early life. And I will say, I, I believe in giving our providers the benefit of the doubt too. And I think some of them, it's just out of respect and worry about how that conversation will be perceived by an older patient who may have different values around sex or sexuality. But when we approach that um, in trying to be respectful and don't bring it up, then we really do a disservice to patients um, by not making that part of the conversation or at least offering to make it part of the conversation and then letting the patient decide whether it's something they want, want to talk about or not. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, I think one of the bottom lines for me or take homes for me would be with older adults is just, um, you know, uh, 
you know, first be aware of your own lenses of like your, your own sort of basic, what we would call mental health, your transference issues, right. With age, um, um, and treat them like you would any other, um, uh, 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 adult, you know, uh, explore issues of sexuality as they're important to be explored, allow that exploration and do the right psychoeducation as well. Cause a lot of times we miss out on, we say, well, they're, they're, you know, 70 years old. They ought to know by now about safe sex. Um, but we don't know that based on, uh, education, based on socioeconomic factors, etc. We don't know that just like we don't know with any other age group. So, still standard sexual sexual education is going to be important um uh to explore you know uh versus making an assumption around that now go ahead deepu you're going to say something i was going to say i think uh, i wonder if part of the issue is just sort of like unchallenged assumptions of normality that sort of exist in the culture so yeah uh, it there may be uh, i think part of what you and grace have been touching on is the un touched assumptions around sexual behavior in later life. So the assumption may be it's normal for older people to not really think about sex or engaging sexual activity uh, or consider sexual pleasure and other things as a quality of life indicator for them. And I also wonder, you know, we know there's fragmentation in care in general, but what about just sort of fragmentation in mind-body split based on the context and life cycle the person is in? Um, just sort of like, oh, once you're older, we're mainly going to worry about uh, preventing risks and falls and uh, making sure that your chronic diseases are managed well and you're not running into any complications. Um, so that's on the one hand. But I think if you, if you start reviewing charts, you'll see a lot of older adults, especially uh, – older men uh, on prescription for Viagra and, and related products. And it, it's sort of divorced from context, like you were saying earlier. Um, I think part of integrating challenging the assumption of we hold for older adults. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is a key uh, underlying factor. There is this assumption about what is normal and what is not. To take the same situation and take a, 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 a 45-year-old male um, receiving a prescription for Viagra, and you can kind of assume this, there's probably going to be more of a conversation there, right? Um, and that shouldn't be the case. There shouldn't really be a differential there. Um, right. And so I think a lot of this has to do with our assumptions, challenging those assumptions, um, and asking good questions. I've had situations where with a physician, when they're giving a prescription, and I'm just picking on this topic, this particular instance, because it comes up a lot, but it's not the only one, where I see a, a prescription for Viagra on there. And I think one of my jobs as a behavioral health professional is to sort of, you know, curi curiously cue the profession, cue the uh, physician and right. say, mm -hmm. you know, so uh, what's the story behind this, right? Um, and the interesting piece is that that oftentimes I've I've found that the story is not erectile dysfunction, um, that there's a more complicated story there around um, lifestyle factors, around relationship issues, um, around work right. stress and things like that that are not really pure erectile dysfunction, certainly not organic erectile dysfunction. Um, um, so uh, bottom line. 
these issues should be addressed. Now, um, I want to move us down the sort of age span to that middle section uh, where we also have a lot of normal range challenges around sex presenting in primary care. Um, so think about uh, couples, um, older singles, et cetera, who come into clinic and who may have issues uh, related to their relationships, whether it's mismatch of sexual desire between them and their partner, um, whether it's, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of issues related to balancing work and family and the stress that that puts on individuals' uh, sexual relationships. Um, I'm just curious from the group, you know, like how often in primary care do you see those issues coming up and being addressed in a way that, that you know, feels like, hey, we're doing a great job? Or, or, or does it feel really challenging in the midst of everything else you need to get through in a primary care visit to, to address these issues? I think it's interesting. You know, we so often end up in this place in this conversation on this podcast about what isn't happening in primary care and what conversations are not being held. And, um, you know, conversations around sexual health are high on the list. I don't have a reference for this, but I remember reading um, some years ago that um, patients uh, uh, were surveyed and they want to talk about their sexual health in primary care. They want their practitioners to ask about that, but it's often, you know, the comfort zone of the of the of the practitioner that um, sort of puts up that barrier. So, so you know, where can we find those openings and? Um, I think it is about uh, training and building the comfort zone and providing sort of some tangible script entrees for um, kind of a global uh, assessment. And, um, and, and I think that there's, um, you know, this, uh, you know, we're talking, we've been talking a little bit just about like, um, you know, sexuality across the lifespan, but there's also the interaction between um, uh, one's um, sexual life and um, their medical conditions. Like how often does a patient in the hospital for an MI, you know, upon discharge, how often is there a conversation about, you know, when can you and how can you return back to your sexual life? So I think that there's a lot, a lot of opportunities here, once again, that the behavioral health clinician, like you were saying so beautifully, uh, Neftali, can sort of cue and uh, reawaken, if not, if not um, uh, having those conversations ourselves. Yeah, and I, I think I think in a sense, maybe one of the themes we're getting to here has to do with the relative importance of sex. You know, so I guess I, I I guess that's an interesting question for us to think about because when we think about prioritization at the primary care visit, and there's a lot of pressure on these visits, we all know that, right? I mean, there's like 15 different topics or, or issues that sometimes our patients are dealing with: diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet, if you take a sort of patient-centered approach, I'm wondering if you ask patients, rank the the thing, these things in area order of importance. Um, how high sexuality and sexual satisfaction, or or the quality of life related to their sex lives, I wonder how high that would actually rank. And I wonder if you ask the care team how high that would rank, you know, I'm, I'm, my assumption is it's going to be way down at the bottom of the list, you know? Right. Right. I mean, is that, that ring true? I think, I think 
but, you know, I usually think uh, of like the scaling question of importance on a scale of one to 10, how important is some issue for you? And I think uh, most providers, including myself, uh, as I'm with a patient, um, I'm not really thinking about uh, how important sexuality and their sexual life to them, unless it's a very targeted consult on ED or um, any marital or relational issues that are popping up in primary care. And I think for me, the biggest takeaway is a little combination of, you know, what you guys have been sharing. And it was sparked by what Grace said about putting it kind of in the patient's hands to communicate to us how important that is to them, um, whether you're working with elderly patients or you're working with um, you know, someone in the middle of their lifespan, H how high does this rank for you at this point in your life? I know that I've talked to people with chronic illnesses where that is the furthest thing from their mind. I've also spoken to people with chronic illness who are like, man, I just really need to get laid and nobody will touch me. And, you know, what, what am I going to do like with all of this feelings and how am I going to communicate to my partner that they can touch me without hurting me? And that's super important for me right now. Um, so I think just kind of taking that patient centered approach and being like, Hey, like I'm cool to talk about this you know, is this something that you want to take the time to go through and, you know, maybe we can work on this together. If that's not important to you right now, then it's not important for us to talk about it right now. Yeah. I think to go back to Jeff's earlier citation of that study, I think I have some of the specifics of that study. I think it is patient centered care when we ask patients about their sexual partners and practices. Cause in the study, um, in a survey of 500 men and women over age 25, 85% of the respondents expressed an interest in talking to their providers about sexual concerns, even though 71% thought their provider would likely dismiss their concerns. Yes. And yeah. uh, a more a sexual history followed by appropriate targeted discussions about ways to stay healthy can actually enhance a patient-provider relationship. So. I think patients may be caught in this double bind of, I hope they'll ask me, but what's the point, even if they ask me or, you know, if I talk about it. Right. And you well, brought up to talk I, about and you're worried about what the reaction will be for the healthcare practitioner, then it's, you know, then there's lots of stumbling blocks on the path. Yeah. And and I, I will just point out that, you know, when I, when I address the, these topics and the discomfort that or, or the, the not the discomfort, but the gaps that probably exist in primary care around it, um, I, I'm pointing fingers at myself and my own profession as well. So I, I think mental health professionals, <laughs> we we don't do enough of that. I don't think I've done enough of this um, or had enough of this awareness um, in my interactions with patients in primary care. And I think we can do do better at this. So it's certainly not pointing the fingers at physicians um, in particular. It's really the care team and our sensitivity to these issues that I think is the key piece. And it's I think it's to the point that if the patient doesn't bring up a particular problem with sexuality, I think that it doesn't get addressed. 
And that sort of goes to sort of our problem-focused approach in in medicine, unfortunately, (laughs) where if there's not a problem that I can fix, then I'm not going to talk about it. Um, But there may very well may be some really core issues uh, there uh, around sexuality. So so let's just say I'll just bring up just an example. Um, You know, a couple, uh, you know, the the visits about uh, diabetes. and one of the one of the key features that we know is really important in diabetic outcomes is engaging a key support partner, right? So let's say you've got a diabetic and you've got their spouse with them in the room, and there's this unspoken tension in the room. You're trying to work on getting them to work and support each other around the diabetes, but there's this unspoken tension that's related to their um, sexuality and their sexual relationship. Um, and that's not, if you don't address that sometimes, those relational dynamics in general, which include sex, um, you can't get to your primary issue around the uh, self-management around diabetes. So that's just one example of the ways in which these issues are interconnected. And if you're open to exploring these, I think you probably end up with better outcomes on some of those core issues that, that you want to get to. But the bottom line is, if there's not like some sexual issue, I think, I think we just don't address it because there's not sort of a problem to fix. I'd like to add into this then kind of like, I think there's a great roadmap um, just in the World Health Organization's definition of sexual health. So um, take a listen to this and you're going to hear like all the areas maybe that we can improve on how we talk about and and how we teach um, our our colleagues to talk about. Um, The WHO defines sexual health as a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being in relation to sexuality. It is not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmity. Sexual health requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships. So like, we could just deconstruct that um, lovely comprehensive definition and begin to open up pathways for conversation in the healthcare environment. Absolutely, that's a, yeah, that's a great definition. And, and it, I think it speaks to the orientation, right? I think um, oriented not just to the clinical components, but oriented really to the normal developmental components as a key feature of health and wellness. That said, I am going to shift us to the clinical pieces because there's people out there who are probably wondering, hey, what do you guys do when there are specific issues that come up? Things like, and the common issues are going to be uh, pain, uh, dyspareunia, um, erectile dysfunction, and anorgasmia, just to name a few. So I, I, I'll start off just by talking about, I think, one of the issues. Go ahead, Jeff. You can, you can interrupt me. Go ahead. No, no. Um, no, keep going. Okay. All right. So, so one of the more um, interesting issues that I've uh, sort of addressed is um, is sort of lack of desire or perceived lack of desire um, in, uh, in women, uh, particularly Hispanic women. And it's been an interesting sort of dynamic for me um, uh, because for a couple of reasons. One is it's really difficult to sort of objectively judge whether lack of desire is a clinical issue or not. Uh, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Um, And then there's also the cultural factors of being a Hispanic male working with a um, often older Hispanic woman. 
Um, actually, I shouldn't say often older. There, there have been many same age um, and older uh, Hispanic women that I've dealt with. So there's some cultural issues around just having a male, a discussion with a male around these issues. And so the challenge has been really for me in those situations, bridging the cultural gap, bridging the gender gap around the issues, and then also bridging the clinical issue of, are we really dealing with uh, low libido? Um, and are there some uh, physiologic causes to that, whether it's medications or chronic illnesses that might be impacting the libido issues um, or even hormonal issues, um, a lot of times around peri uh, the perimenopausal uh, time period, there can be issues like that versus um, are there relationship factors that are coming into play um, with the with the low libido um, versus uh, just uh, stress in the relationship or an unrealistic and unhealthy expectation on the part of the spouse related to what sort of desire the female partner ought to express. And I pick on the female partner here because that's the typical situation. I have had some situations where it's actually the woman complaining that the man has low libido. So that that has also happened. Um, but it, it just demonstrates, I think, the complexity of the way in which these sorts of issues can present. It's never, it seems to me, cut and dry libido, cut and dry pain, cut and dry erectile dysfunction. I don't know if that's just my experience, but it's always more complicated than that. What What do you guys think? No, I think you're spot on. I think uh, if sexual behavior and experiences occur in context, like there are some things that are happening uh, in the background of things, and some of that can be physiological and sort of very clinical in that sense to further study and understand, but often... Uh, even if that is solved, let's just say the clinical issues are solved, does that mean they they can confidently and satisfactorily return to a sexual life with their partner um, or in their life? So I think I don't see them as clear-cut, uh, straightforward issues. Um, and now that I'm thinking about it as I'm speaking, most most of the issues that we may see as BHCs uh, is to uncover the context and the way that it's occurring and sort of the triggering factors and the intervening factors that make it better, make it worse, uh, and beginning to help people be more confident in handling those issues when it comes up. And I think for me, another thing that I've seen come up over and over and over again is the med management piece where there's a lot of fun side effects to different medications that people are mm -hmm. on um, or they may not even be aware that low libido is a potential side effect of the medication that they're on. Um, I was talking to a young man just the other week um, who was not really being compliant with his, uh, I think he was prescribed Adderall. Um, and he's like, oh, I can't really, I don't know. I don't know why I don't take it. And after a lot of trust building, he disclosed to me that when he is um, taking his Adderall, he's not able to get an erection. And he's afraid that his girlfriend's going to leave him because she's perceiving this as him not having desire for her. Um, and they don't see each other on a consistent basis. So he's just kind of not really taking his Adderall consistently. Um, and that was something that 
probably would not have come up. Um, and it just kind of happened where I was grasping at straws and I'm like, okay, like what's your relationship? Like what's going on there? And then that's how that came up as a side effect of the Adderall. And I know a lot of antidepressant medication, um, has that as a side effect as well. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great example, uh, Amber, of how these issues come up surreptitiously, but are actually at the core of why a patient is behaving in a certain, certain way. That's a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with any of these issues, there's going to be this complexity um, that's involved, um, uh, whether it's, again, pain or erectile dysfunction. I think one of the take-homes here is simply to... Um, really assess importance, right? So if we assess what's truly important uh, to an individual in their life, um, usually we're going to get to aspects of family, relationships, um, dynamics in those relationships. And health, is, in a way, is a supportive factor in those uh, core issues. Um, and sexual health gets sort of blended in there with all of those other issues. So I think if we address importance and ask basic questions like, okay, so we're dealing with your diabetes, but I want to take a moment just to ask you of all the things that are important to you in your life, family, uh, your relationships, your kids, your work, um, your uh, your health, et cetera. Can you give me a sense of what, what rises to the top of your list? And then explore from there. Um, and we can ask some pointed questions around sexuality as part of that. So whenever we're addressing marital relationships or um, uh, any sort of intimate relationships, we ought to be asking about sexuality. Um, and we can ask it, I think, with some pretty simple questions. I don't know what you guys might um, think of using as far as uh opening questions, but I often will ask things like, so what's the quality of your sexual relationship with your partner? Um, because that allows the patient to really talk a little bit more broadly about their values, what's important to them, and what their experience is related to that. And it can also just frankly serve as a good proxy for the larger issues around what the quality of the relationship is like. So it's just one way of sort of addressing this. Now, again, there's lots we could talk about, but Amber, I want to ask you um, as a new professional, so thinking about this issue of sexuality and and sort of the, the complicated dynamics related to it, what what do you feel like you need to know or what what is perhaps challenging for you at this stage? when dealing or addressing issues of sexuality with patients? What, you know, if you've got Deepu and myself, supposed experienced people here, um, and, and you wanted to pick our brains about, hey, how do I kind of work with these issues of sexuality? What's the first thing sort of that comes to your mind related to your role as a new professional? Well, Neftal, you just started to touch on it where you were giving some examples of how you open that conversation. Um, so I'm interested if anybody has more to add about that, because uh, I think oftentimes that's where I'm like, OK, I need some go to lines here to to start this conversation um, in our pre recording uh, meeting. I'd shared that the area that I'm in um, is a predominantly uh, Mennonite uh, area. And so uh, especially when I'm seeing older patients, uh, that's not really something that is cool to talk about 
because of that um, aspect with the generational gap and then also the cultural and religious aspect of it. Um, so just kind of how to respectfully and comfortably uh, open up that space to allow them to share as much or as little as they feel like they can can share. Yeah, so I'll throw this one to you, DP, because um, and actually, you know, we'll we'll hopefully talk about this at a future podcast. But DP has some uh, 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 strong spiritual leanings um, and training in his background, um, and so issues of faith are actually pretty intertwined with issues of sexuality, aren't they? Right? I mean, there's this big undercurrents there. Um, so, so how do we address these issues in in a in a sensitive, culturally appropriate fashion. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. No pressure, Deepu. No pressure. Yeah, yeah. Let me <laughs> let me take this uh, time ticking bomb away somehow. <laughs> uh, dismantle it. Uh, I think. Yeah. So uh, yes, so I think one of the uh, first thing is to sort of make it make sure that we are doing this as part of just health. Like your health includes your sexuality, and so one of the things that we do is this uh, sort of like a slightly extended version of Siggy Caps, where we Check with people, has your sleep, interest in doing pleasurable things, guilt, appetite, all of these things. Has it increased, decreased, or stayed normal based on the issue that we are seeing them for, the target referral that we're seeing them for? And one of the things I often ask um, at the end of it is sexual desire. Has it increased, decreased, or stayed normal based on sleep issues or other things that have been coming up? Because hopefully that will either, if it's, decreased or if it's increased that has some implications for um, what their quality of life is like and what's happening to them so if, if they sort of make a face I usually uh, they usually make a face at that and they usually make a face at sort of suicidal ideations or homicidal ideations and uh, you know the my quick response is um, I know these maybe I saw you sort of make a, a slight response to that question I ask of uh, and this of all my patients, because we consider if your health or if it's or for related side, this is one thing that we do for all of our patients because a large majority of complete sites actually uh, the patients actually a primary care doctor within three days of their um, within their suicidal completion. So you know we just and then patients usually respond uh, best to that. I think. Um, from a faith and spirituality perspective, um, there are, uh, there is probably that's the most bundled up, knotted, untouched set of assumptions about sexuality, morality, what is right, what is not right, uh, kind of assumptions. And I think um, we've had some difficult conversations with providers here where they sort of um, really become, uh, their tone changes when they talk about multiple partners and other things. And I think an important thing would be to, if you know particularly faith and spirituality is important to them, at some point to begin the question of how does your faith and spirituality inform your health in general? And then also just, uh, especially if it's a sexual-related issue or a target uh, referral, then I would think about bringing that in to say, um, in terms of your faith and in terms of your prayer life or in terms of your uh, conversations in your spiritual life, how does that inform or impact your sexual behavior or your sexual health? Um, because 
sometimes it's dissonance. Sometimes it's the things that they're feeling may be really opposite to what their faith or other things have told them or prescribed them. And they're definitely not seeing it that way. Uh, or they're behaving in a different way that's not uh, concordant with their faith community or set of beliefs. And I think our task is to help them recognize the dissonance and how that is probably increasing their distress. Um, you know, correct, but um, one of the things I often help them think about is, especially from a spiritual perspective, is to say they have all of these ideas about how God is going to punish them or do other things to them based on the things, and they're just gently prodding sort of think about, you know, how do they see God and, and do they see forgiveness? Do they see love as a element in their relationship with God? And usually helps to bridge some of those things um, in a less toxic way, because what they're presenting is probably a pretty toxic narrative around um, sexual health and sexual behavior. Yes. And that's the comprehensive answer to the subject. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I know it's a, it's a knotted topic. We don't have um, tons of time, but maybe something we can come back to down the road. In fact, um, it reminds me that we do have um, faith and spirituality as one of the uh, topics we're going to uh, cover this year. Um, uh, so now's a good time. We're at the end of our podcast here. So now's a good time probably to let you know that we've got a series of topics that we're going to be exploring like this. They're big topics. So just like today, we didn't cover a bunch of areas. We didn't cover adolescent health and sexuality. We didn't cover sexual orientation and sexuality. Um, uh, uh, we didn't, you know, we could have gone into much deeper detail related to some of these dis sexual dysfunction issues, et cetera. Um, but this hopefully gives you some starting point to think about it, and then we'll, we'll circle back on these topics uh, down the road. But let me give you a rundown of some of the topics that we're, we're going to be talking about this year. Um, all around, they're inspired by the biopsychosocial model, so they're all around this sort of comprehensive uh, view of the human person and, and our patients. So, of course, uh, this month we've covered uh, very briefly sexuality and integrated care. Uh, we're going to cover culture, culture, race, and ethnicity in integrated care coming up in April. Um, we're going to cover relationships, broadly speaking, in integrated care in June, genetics in integrated care in July, eating in integrated care in August, uh, and then November, we're going to come to our spirituality and in integrated care topic, and then we're going to end December uh, with sleep and integrated care. In between that, we're going to intersperse some other topic areas that are more broad uh, re and related to integrated care. But it just gives you a sense of the flavor of what we're going to be touching on this year. We are at the end of our podcast time. We all have to go on with our work lives just as, just as you do. Um, uh, but we're going to cut uh, here to our interview. So uh, we do encourage you to keep listening here to our interview with Travis Koss. He is um, a uh, director of training at the Health Federation of Philadelphia. And I had a, had a really interesting talk with him related to um, how they train a large network of behavioral health consultants. Um, uh, this is a network that's comprised of disparate 
uh, health agencies. So it's not just one organization, it's across many organizations. They have over 40 BHCs that are a part of their network. And so here's my conversation with Travis um, around uh, how they train their BHCs and how they keep this network uh, going together. So uh, large-scale workforce development, essentially. So here's my interview with Travis Kaz. Travis, uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm really interested in what you guys have put together here in Philadelphia because of its size, scope, and also its duration. Um, so uh, you guys have been at this now for almost 12 years probably, right? Since about 2005, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And I'm just curious if you could describe a little bit about how the network functions, how it works, and, and uh, uh, how many people are involved. Uh, that's correct. I'm so glad to be here. So Philadelphia is a unique place, as in many uh, cities and municipalities, where it is a city truly of neighborhoods that are spread across a pretty broad area. And when integration was developing, the real challenge was how do we have the workforce on the same page? Having a, a payer who was very interested in this model of integration and being willing to partner and wanting to make sure that it was a very resiliency and recovery oriented model and that would provide a unique service that wouldn't replicate outpatient therapy was very important to them. And initially when I was starting, and I know, uh, Natalia, you had a, a great role in doing a lot of consulting and helping the network, both giving training and also having the network build itself. The real focus was we're having at this point, we represent over 28 different FQHCs, very qualified health centers, and these are spread out over eight different organizations directly in the Philadelphia area. We also work with some agencies that are directly outside of Philadelphia that come to us for trainings and other factors. Uh, however, the, the real challenge was how do you pull in eight different companies with different work policies, different onboarding strategies, different hiring, and get them to be on the same page? So. The idea was we're seeing relatively similar populations. It's a very high population of a lot of below the poverty line, a lot of disparities in care, and covering a lot of different diverse groups, um, varying from centers that are very focused on LGBT, centers that are really focusing to a Spanish language population, some that are more on kind of a commuting with driving, some that are more uh, people get around by foot or public transportation. So it really led to uh, a lot of challenges, especially in how do we connect people that aren't normally connecting to standard behavioral health or substance use care and really relying on their FQHCs. So that's just a broad overview of the network. And at that point, it was a much smaller involvement than now the number of BHCs, there's been a lot of growth. Uh, but we're up to over approaching 40 BHCs and hiring a number more in expansion. And then we're working with another health center that isn't a FQHC, but a hospital-based facility that received a grant. And they are also at 25 BHCs. So we're providing consultation for them. So as you can imagine, there, there's a lot of challenges we'll probably get into with that. Uh, but our main goal, and we can get into some of the specifics, was to provide really three main goals. One was to provide a meeting place, a network that can help advocate for consensus in terms of billing rates, 
protocol procedure and just what is this integrated person in primary care doing? What model are they practicing? What is the focus of that? And that occurs through some of the work that the Health Federation of Philadelphia does with the city of Philadelphia to uh, promote and keep this process live and negotiate. And the other part is monthly trainings. So there would be a two hour training monthly uh, that varies on topics. And what's unique is this is changing now, but of course, before there was no school for integrated behavioral health. So how do you get someone to have the capacities when they didn't start off in this, if they were doing traditional outpatient or hospice or inpatient? Uh, So the monthly trainings were very germane to topics that come up in integrated behavioral health work. And at first it was a lot based on expert sort of what are the skills that someone needs as a integrated behavioral health and how do we introduce this? And I can talk a little bit more than how we started to kind of fine grain analysis, uh, analyze of who really could, uh, what trainings can we focus on that really meet certain needs that we're seeing as disparities in the network. Uh, but our, our focus was give this monthly training for everyone that's in the network and provide continued education on that. And then the other process is having an onboarding process so that newer integrated behavioral health consultants, BHCs, can be able to quickly get up to speed. And we do that through a couple different processes. The first thing is we are really adamant about shadowing. So anyone that is new to the network is going to shadow BHCs within their own network if they already exist, so they will ride along. Uh, Some places maybe one or two days. Other places have a full two-week system where you follow different BHCs and get a real detailed training on the job about writing notes, consulting with the providers, how you actually structure anywhere from a 20 to a 30-minute visit. And we also encourage a shadowing at other health centers within our network. Um, so, you know, this network is not is different agencies that are working together on this specific um, initiative. But so you're having someone go to a different company and say, here's how we do it here at our health centers. And there's a lot of similarity because of cross training. Uh, so this gives some different perspective to be able to work with someone that maybe has a lot of experience or is working with a population similar to what someone might be doing in their health center. And so those those tenets of really working together with the city to to advocate for all the agencies to have a similar role and, and a similar mission to be able to provide monthly training and then to have an onboarding process, which involves shadowing. And then I can talk about a, a boot camp that we lead yearly, which really provides an in-depth training over four days to anyone that's newer in the BHC field. Sure. So let me let me sort of level set the audience a little bit about this. Uh, so this is what's fascinating about uh, the this network story and your work with it, Travis, that you've basically got um, this super large network. I mean, you're talking about 40 professionals and it's cut across. Um, how many uh, agencies did you say at this point? We are at actually we just added our ninth agency. Yeah. So anybody who understands about how agencies have difficulty cooperating with one another, you'd have about nine different agencies, 40 different individuals. Uh, and then you're, you know, you talked, you alluded to the Jefferson Health System um, that has their own 25 BHCs that they are uh, either hiring or in the process of hiring. Um, and then you have this gargantuan challenge of training uh, this really new workforce with a mix of folks who are new out of school 
and some people retraining. Um, and then now, over 10 years, you have some folks who act, act like yourself, for example, who've been doing this for quite a while, who are at more at an advanced level, still part of the network, still need training. And then folks who are at the very early part, uh, maybe just out of school, maybe just hired, um, just doing stuff. So I want you to speak a little bit to the challenge of managing mm-hmm. that that training challenge. Uh what how, how do you meet the needs of all those organizations mm-hmm. and all those individuals? That's a great question. Um, so I think one it is definitely related to trying to give BHCs that are new to the job that that onboarding experience. And so that's a different set of trainings. So what we'll offer once a year for those BHCs to try to get them, uh, familiar with the lingo and, and the philosophies and, and the practice skills is that one week training, which in itself has some challenges because you have some people that are fresh on the job and were just hired a month ago. And you have some that have been in the job for eight months at that point. Uh, um, but we are really giving a, a comprehensive overview for those new BBHCs on motivational interviewing, what it means to practice within the PCBH model, what are the philosophies that you want to have going in the room in terms of using the 5A model of really structuring your console, doing a good functional assessment, being able to have brief interventions that are related to substance use, smoking, sleep, depression, anxiety, and health. And these are all subcomponent trainings that we do for an hour or two with a lot of role play. Um, we'll often use more of the experienced BHCs as kind of the BHC at first and have the newbie play more of the patient, and then we'll flip roles as the training goes on so that the, the newbies and the, BH, the experience, the a little bit more experience can kind of share perspectives and learn off of each other. Uh, but we build in all these components in a, in a, uh, a didactic-based, hands-on training that we've, we've tested over the years and built to at least build that basic competency for the, the initial BHCs and as well as what they're getting through shadowing existing BHCs. But the monthly trainings get a little tricky. I mean, obviously we are trying to meet some of the continuation requirements. So mandated reporting, suicide risk reduction, those you know are, are ones that are hallmarks in our, in our two-year cycle. But what we try to do is to do a lot of feedback from within the network. I, I um, do a lot of shadowing BHCs myself, a reverse shadow. We're all, as a, a network consultant, uh, one day a week I have reserved to go around our different sites and help out with different needs. And one of them is riding along with the BHC for part of their day and to get a sense of what are their strengths and what are some of the challenges. And I'll do that with a whole host of BHCs in our network at different experience levels. I'll talk to the integrated directors at each of these different agencies to get a sense of where is their workforce, what are the needs, and we do some different forms of assessment to be able to say, okay, what training can we provide that's going to meet a need that we're seeing in the network? So, for example, a lot of individuals were interested in mindfulness and and brief uh, stress reduction techniques, but what we saw were a lot of people were using simple deep breathing. And that can be a really great backbone for relaxation. But in talking, we realized, oh, maybe we should do a little bit more with progressive muscle relaxation, visualization, um, brief meditation training. And so what we'll do is we'll design a curriculum 
where in a, in a two hour block, we'll have some time for breakout discussion, talking about how to incorporate in your own practice, but we'll do we'll start from the basics and work towards more advanced. And we'll call on more of our advanced PHCs that have been with the network for a while to take more of an active role in discussing how they use that in their practice and still trying to add new techniques for them. While the newer BHCs can really, uh, through osmosis, absorb a lot and practice a lot right then and there and, and try to build those skills. And what we find is for some trainings, yeah, some of the experienced BHCs are like, yeah, we've covered this, we know this, right. um, but there's a refresher that they appreciate. And I think our spirit of our network over the last 12 years is this is a give back. Like you are in this network, you've got a lot from it. In return, we expect you to help with the training and giving back. So experienced BHCs will lead the training. Uh, we encourage as people start to kind of hit that two or three year point where they're starting to show some mastery to really encourage them to do training in different ways, even in small parts. And so that's the way we kind of keep it fresh for them. And there's always a training. Someone's like, I'm not doing this. I didn't even think about this. It's something I can learn about. So I think that's how we approach that different challenge of really kind of trying to meet what the current needs are, what the gaps are ever increasing our focus to a more integrative, uh, holistic model where providers and BHCs are working closely to develop what's the next step of practice to best help patients and have that then spill into our training with BHCs, using the experience as uh, leaning on them a little bit more, but also helping them grow their capacity. Sure. Yeah. And I think what I appreciate about what you're talking about, Travis, so much is uh, how responsive the training is, right? I mean, it, it, it it's uh, you're you're constantly reevaluating what your network's needs are, and you do have some routines built in, right? You have your BHC mm-hmm. boot camp, you have your onboarding processes, um, you have your emphasis on shadowing um, and reverse shadowing exercises. So you have some built-in processes, but I love that it's so responsive. Um, the other thing I think, and this comes probably um, from Natalie Lefkovich, the director of the Health Federation of Philadelphia that, that, that sort of uh, runs this network uh, that you work for, um, is, is sort of a, uh, an emphasis on the idea that learning is about um, uh, relationship. Um, and so uh, the learning has to be contextual. The learning has to be um, in, in, in a process of, of supervision and uh, ref- reflection. Uh, that's a big part of it. And uh, Natalie's always had that vision, um, and it's sort of displayed in the spirit that you're talking about, this whole idea that uh, this learning process is a fluid process um, over time that involves the learners as well, becoming teachers over time and then flipping back and forth between learning and teaching as they participate in this network. So I think that's a a really fascinating, um, I think, element to this. I can see the temptation potentially if you had a large network like this, for example, just to have a prepackaged sort of training, right? Mm -hmm. You know, all right, you take your certificate program and then you're done, right? Uh, But that's not the strategy. Um, Where do you see this going? Uh, as it evolves over time, um, and in particularly for folks like yourself, because you're an experienced person, I'm sure you've done some reflection about where you see your own career going and maturing. Um, where do you see the network going, and where do you see it taking some of these more experienced BHCs? What's the sort of the career trajectory you think for for folks? Uh, there's a lot in that question there. I think that could be 
teased out. I think yeah, I think I was, asked like five questions <laughs> in one right there. Well, I tend great. to do that. Well, they're great. Well, I think one, you know, just kind of going back to what you were saying about Anaya Lefkovich, she, you know, there's a lot of visionary leadership there of the importance of relationship. And it's not just one meeting, get everyone in the room, talk. You know, we do have our, our site-based director meetings where they can come in and have that ability to vent. And we're even using those meetings now instead of a update, here's what's going on in the city, here's what we're trying to do with integration, but also doing leadership development for them of how, how can they be effective leaders within their integrated healthcare network, not only for overseeing BHCs and providing supervision, but working with higher levels of administration in their organization to help build their skills of how do I you know, the BHC skill set can translate in a lot of ways, but once you start getting into um, more of your C-level meetings in an organization, you want to make sure that you have a certain skill set and that you can represent that. So that's one thing that we're doing with our integrated um, behavioral health leaders is helping them build their skill set and also getting a lot of information from where they are. But there's also meetings that are or outside of that, to sit down and grab a cup of coffee of where's your network at, what are the needs are, where you can talk more candidly and in a more one-on-one -on -one way. Uh, so I think that just kind of answers to how we've really built this network is by that power of relationship and taking let me, that. Let me sure. just pause there for a second, just because that's uh, so really, so important. Um, I just love that you guys are also paying attention, not just paying attention to individual BHCs, but you're paying attention to these directors, these folks that are thrown into these programs to build them up and they have support both from each other and from you guys. I think that's so crucial. I agree. And I think that, you know, in part of your trajectory question, uh, I think that's a huge part of it because once you start to reduce your hours and say, I'm going to do more administrative tasks, whether it's research or it becomes more of a, a leadership role, uh, you know, there's there's challenges that come up and we, we use our BHC skill set to manage that and kind of use PDSA cycles and think about functional assessment. What's the problem? How do we best address it? Who's involved? But I think our, our focus is how do we prepare individuals to take those next challenges within organizations where that organization may have different functions. They may have their own outpatient behavioral health. They may do something with community outreach or advocacy. They may have a different other growth and, and with all the focus too on uh, medication assisted treatment and opioid use disorder, there's a lot of our directors that are getting more involved in their agency's approach to that and taking on different projects, either through research or agency derived, we wanna focus on this area. So I think for a lot of BHCs, there is for many of them a desire to stay in this role and, and to do this and maybe augment their time either with some private practice work or providing supervision for new students or teaching. But for those that are moving more into a leadership role, they're often taking a larger role in their organizations because they can see the big picture. They know what's happening on the care delivery model and can translate that to a message that's easily discernible for senior leadership and then work through action steps to see how do we make that happen. So I think that's where we're seeing some BHCs going. My track specifically is more involved with BHC practice and research of how can we understand that there's this great environment to provide care and understand how to best help people. How can we really gear research projects towards targeting what the needs are in working in a team-based fashion? Uh, so one area I'm particularly interested in is with you know changes in opioid medication. How do we really reinvent how pain care is being provided uh, and provide more support for teams to be able to offer groups and individual consultation and the training to be able to do that. So I feel like my time as a BHD helps me better understand 
how we can design programs that might work at different centers and maybe be something we can disseminate and build off of. Uh, so that's one area where I see value, but I also just see value in how do you work with a system to better improve their integration? It's great to put a VHC in, help them build a team and get referrals, but there's really an active maintenance and oiling of that process and then realizing, wow, there's certain needs and there's certain population health factors that we can better help at our clinic. How do we work together to better integrate our services and think outside the box to better help those we're serving? And as we get into just beyond placing a BHC and working with the team, there's some differences that happen of just instead of just dropping a BHC in, there's changes in how other staff members start to work with the BHC and change their roles and start to take on different things or rely on the BHC for different things. And that's a, a process that can be evolution. And yet there can be a lot of guidance that can help sites hit certain goals and reach different levels of integration in a, in a more planned and maybe even a sped up manner. Yeah. So speaking of levels of integration, that's one of the things that I know you do is you try to assess um, a site's level of integration. Mm -hmm. So um, can you give briefly a, a, a thumbnail sketch of what you do when you go to a site to assess level of integration, maybe what tools you use, and then also uh, the tricky part that I found as I've done this kind of work myself is how do you communicate um, that feedback to a site? We uh, were recently charged this year to go to every single one of our FQHCs and do this level of integration assessment. Uh, I think it was one, um, our, our funder is a real big supporter of this, but was curious, what is actually happening when this integration occurs? So there are a lot of different tools to be able to assess where a site is in its level of integration. The, um, the common language that has been used uh, from SAMHSA and HRSA is a, a six-level model, where if you think one or two are more off-site, your traditional behavioral health, primary care engagement, three and four, where you start to see an integrated person being co-located and working with the team members, and, and five and six, where you start to see some interesting practice changes and how workflows change, what providers are doing, how teams are working together in planning care to especially help those that are more at risk. So what we have tended to do is block off usually during a lunchtime where we can get a medical provider, often the lead medical provider. And if it's more of an administrative medical provider, we're usually clamoring to get a medical provider that's also in the day-to-day -day practice quite often. Uh, a BHC and often the BHC director in the meeting and we will also get an administrator that looks at billing and workflows and policy. And we did two rounds of this with every site in the last year. And what we did in the second round is we advocated for a medical assistant to be in the room because they just understand the flow and what actually happens from walking in the door to getting out oh, the yeah. door. So that yeah, was truth tellers. Oh yeah. And they, they hear things in a different way than we get to hear. So um, that was one of the biggest add-ons that we did. And so we block about an hour and a half uh, in some cases, it's, it's two hours. And what we'll do first is there's a tool called um, the IPAT, the Integrated Practice Assessment Tool. This is a good, brief, top-down decision tree with some brief education. You can have each member fill it out on their own to see, based on yes and no questions, what level of integration do you think the site is at? I found 
a loan that gives a ballpark estimate, or, but it doesn't break it into different domains. And there can be a lot of variance between different people's opinion, depending on where they're kind of looking at the system of integration. So I've been using alongside of that uh, items from the integration self-assessment checklist, which asks about 40 items. I cherry pick and you can pick based on where the estimated level is. So if I'm hearing a site that is like a level four, maybe on the cusp of five, I use questions from the level three just to make sure it's not a little bit lower. And then from the four and five level on different areas of co-location, how does practice actually look? How does policy and billing structure work? How do the providers uh, and the, the BHCs work together? Are there meetings? Do they ever work on a project together? Are there certain goals that they're both trying to accomplish with evidence-based approaches from both their disciplines, such as screening tools? So I'll ask specific questions about that of the team and just kind of go through in a, in a, in a collegial sort of way of how does this work for you? And what do you do when you're facing a new problem? So with a lot of our sites, opioids have been a good way of how are you approaching opioids? What's your approach when you say you want to tackle this different in the clinic? But who's in the room? So being able to get a sense, is there integration in that planning phase of, are we all talking and bringing our perspectives? Or is it more of a top-down, the director or the administrator says, we need to tackle this, let's roll out this project, let's do it this way. Um, so it gets a sense just to see how the work flows and how the teams are working together. Um, so I'll do that assessment and then I'm able to give some feedback and say, wow, you, you really have location great. It looks like the way your BHCs are practicing seem to really be kind of hallmark PCBH. That's like a level five. Uh, here's an area I noticed that that it maybe hasn't uh, reached that point is I see there's some meetings that are happening where there wasn't BHC input. What do you think about that? And then that allows me to double check my initial assessment, but it's a way to give that feedback and I can give give that more on the scale of, okay, here's where I see your site at. Let's go into this based on what I would do. And I don't dive right into the iPad or the other checklist. I have each member of the team go, what is integrated care like for you? What are you seeing that works? What are the challenges? And I'm feverishly writing this down in the beginning and like taking 15 minutes to do this. So then I'll come back at the end after we've gone over the levels and say, here's what I've heard you say is going really well. Here's where the challenges are in, in your network, or here's what this discipline wants to see a little bit more of. MAs get annoyed because their flow is always interrupted. And sometimes the BHC is grabbing and taking someone out of order for them. Or um, the BHC will feel like, I don't know where to get in to get someone, or it's hard for me to do a cold call. Or sometimes the handoffs aren't coming from three providers, and I'm really trying to work with them. So what we'll do is we'll identify needs and list in priority from like one to I really try to keep it from three to five needs for the site and have everyone kind of agree at the table that this is a tentative need that would be priority. And then what we'll do is we'll come up with a goal statement of over the next six months to a year, what do you really want to see your organization get better at? And it might be communication. It may be working better on addressing this problem need. It may be having BHCs more involved in, in health consults. And then we'll work on some specific SMART goals, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic that are not like, you need to do this, but rather a propose that they can take back to their team and they'll have a copy of this paper document I'll send a day or two later saying, here's where your level of integration was, here's where the needs you identified to kind of keep improving integration and to highlight what your strengths are already, here's your goal statement, and then here are the specific goals that you wanna work on. And then we'll do a follow-up meeting to check in about six months later, how are those needs at this point? How is your goal attainment? And where's your level of integration now that you can work these things? So it becomes more of a developmental process and using some language that 
integration is always changing as new people come and go, as new challenges are put on, and it can be a fluid process. And sometimes if you're understaffed or have a new challenge, you may not be as integrated at one point, but we can work to better improve some of that communication and teamwork and interdisciplinary focus. That's outstanding. And I'm sure the the practices uh, really benefit tremendously from that opportunity to be reflective about their team-based care. Um, do you ever uh, get a practice pushing back uh, and say, well, we think, we think we're better than what you think we are? Uh, I can surmise from the way that you present it that uh, you're, you're using some good MI skills, basically, and not eliciting a whole lot of resistance. But I'm just curious, do you ever get a practice saying, oh, we don't think we're a four, we're, we're six? Yeah, I think what I will do on that, of course, it's like the scaling question. If someone says, you know, I'm, I'm a three, I change and ask why you're a one, right? So I'll say, you know, what, what makes you what are the things that are really the hallmarks that make you feel like that your integration is great? And what would then, what do you feel like would make you a leader in this area and in, in the Philadelphia area of integration, what do you feel like you still need to accomplish? And then what I'll do is I'll do some education kind of dialing back that as we get into those higher levels of integration, what we really want to see is universal screening. We want to be able to see uh, that, there are opportunities where it isn't just a, a kind of a reactive referral system, but rather we're trying to identify people that might be missed otherwise. And we'll talk about, you know, there's a lot of, in those cases, like kind of reinforcing linkage providers are great. They identify, but they also have a busy day. And sometimes there's people that just get missed that could really use integrated care. So how do we better identify such as the people that are coming up on your meaningful use list that are using the ER too often, or their diabetes is out of control, you know, could we help out with your agency and maybe work as a team on that to figure out what would be a great way to identify that? And I think that would further move along your integration towards some of these higher levels. But it's focusing very well on what they're doing well, where they're trying to get to, and then doing a, a little consciousness raising of really a, a solid five or six is this, giving that education and then kind of going back to say, what could help you get there? Because I really see you're striving to get there, but there's just one thing that maybe can be a little bit tightened up or rolled out to make that happen. And sites usually receive that very well. Uh, you know, I've had some sites where the training is do very, very brief visits and it's a little bit more of screening and refer. And we'll talk about, okay, you know, in building your, your focus, we also want to help those people in the moment. So how do we build that skill to have your BHC be able to do that in the moment or to be able to help a site who isn't referring a lot and the BHC is doing more of their own cold calling to um, kind of identify that. And I think once we get into the specifics, the guard goes down and insights are like, yeah, I think we could work a little bit more on that. And we can understand where that score is, but we really want to be that five or six. So then I use that motivation as a way to, as an agent of change. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, the way you present these things. It's hard to disagree with you. So <laughs> you do very well. Well, uh, Travis, we could talk forever. This has been absolutely fascinating, and um, I'm sure we'll have you back on here on the podcast as uh, as you guys develop things there in Philadelphia. It's a great story to tell, and one that I'm glad that the the nation is hearing here through this podcast and it presentations I know you've done at our conference. So thank you so much for sharing your story. I hope you're open to coming on board again. Of course. It was my pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Travis. All right. And we're back. Thank you very much to Travis for his time and talking to us about 
uh, the workforce development efforts going on in Philadelphia as part of the Health Federation of Philadelphia. Um, we don't have time today to uh, discuss the interview, uh, but again, thanks to Travis for his time. Hopefully it's uh, given those of you who are working and training uh, behavioral health consultants some nuggets, some ideas around making that happen. As is our practice, we have uh, Deepu or one of the other members of our team, usually Deepu, take us out um, with a closing thought. So Deepu, take us out. Absolutely. One, one resource uh, around sexual health and clinical practice uh, maybe uh, is taking routine histories of sexual health, a system-wide approach for health centers. This is a a report that was developed by the National LGBT Health Education Center and the National Association of Community Health Centers. And that gives you a lot of ways to tackle some of the things that we talked about in relation to stigma and other things. Um, okay, so anyway, I have a quote from Joseph Campbell, who, is, who was an American professor of literature and worked on comparative in comparative religion uh, with the topic we discussed. And in the work we do as integrated care, I thought this may give a good uh, sense of hope for the work that we ahead of us in 2019. We have not even to risk the adventure alone, for the heroes of all time have gone before us. The labyrinth is thoroughly known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path. And wherever we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a god. Where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outward, we shall come to the center of our own existence. Where we had thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. Thanks, Deepu, and thanks to our podcast team. Um, and a quick shout out also to our post-production guy, post-production guy Kevin Radine. He is the director of integrated student health and counseling services at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Rochester, New York. Um, he's actually not doing the, pod, the post-production for this one, so you can blame me for any post-production issues. He's <laughs> usually doing post-production for us, and I wanted to make sure to give him a shout-out. We're going to give him a shout-out every single time we do this because he's, he's uh, done a great job with our post-production on this. This month, he is, uh, he is also a Ph.D. student studying integrated care at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And so he's got some uh, serious workload uh, this month, as uh, PhD students tend to have. But thank you, Kevin, for your work. And thank you all for listening to the Integrated Care Podcast. On behalf of our team, Amber, Deepu, Grace, Jeff, and myself, Naftali, it's a pleasure uh, to spend a little bit of time each month with you. We look forward to talking with you next month. Until then, I'm Dr. Naftali Serrano for the Integrated Care Podcast. We'll see you soon.